Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, January 31st, 2021. We almost have an entire month of 2021 behind us, and we are happy to say what goodbye. A slow news month. No. So slow. It was like December 2, like number 2, like the second part of December. Let's just assume the year 2021 begins tomorrow, <laughs> February 1st. 11 month calendar. Perfectly fine. Fine. I mean, it's all time is a blur right now. Anyway, today on Polylog, we're going to be looking at the Sunday shows I watched today, Brendan, Fox News Sunday, State of the Union, and Meet the Press. Yep. And I did Face the Nation and This Week. So you had the three shows right. this time. And, you know, broad thematically, things we'll be discussing. COVID obviously is huge. Vaccine rollout is huge. There's an impending impeachment trial coming up next week, not this coming week, but next week. And some reckoning within the GOP overall, I think, is still a prominent theme. And then there's the COVID stimulus plan, or I should say COVID relief plan. That it's Biden's first relief bill. Yep, exactly. So lots, lots to discuss. So Naomi, why don't we begin with quality questionable, as we always do now in this new new world of ours. Do you want to talk about, you know, start us off with something of high quality. People will be hearing this at the beginning of, of 2021, as we say, you know, February 1st. <laughs> so uh, give them something quality to start with. Yeah. So my quality moment is a Republican congressman that I heard on Meet the Press. And I guess the quality moment is, I think I would say, Kudos to the Meet the Press team for making space and time on their show, for having voices of the Republican Party who want something different than what they've been experiencing. In particular, we saw Congressman Adam Kinsinger. He's a Republican congressman from Illinois, and he echoed something that we saw I think it was last week or the week before with the new freshman Congresswoman Mace Mm -hmm. talking about cancel culture within the GOP. We've seen that there is already I brought up the movements about censure. Um, We saw it in South Carolina uh, to Congressman Rice. I know that the Illinois Republican Party apparently is preparing to do it to you. Um, The irony of the Republican Party participating in cancel culture. I'm curious. I mean, is there just no room? for disagreement in the Republican Party when it comes to Donald Trump? I mean, this is, to me, a form of cancel culture, is it not? It is, totally. I mean, if you look at Matt Gaetz going to to Wyoming, because what, a a tough woman has an independent view, and he doesn't want to have to go out and explain why he didn't vote for impeachment? That's totally GOP cancel culture. And what we're standing for, and I think what, frankly, a significant part of the base wants, is to say, Look, we can have a diversity of opinion. Peter Meyer from Michigan, good friend of mine. He and I are on other ends of the spectrum on things like foreign policy, but I respect his view on that. That's what the Republican Party needs to be, the optimistic party in the future. And we need to quit being the party that even IOTA defends an insurrection, a dead police officer, and other dead Americans on the Capitol. There is no equivalency to that, and we have to run from that as fast as we can. Wow, strong words. Yeah, I mean... So in general, I usually get pretty eye-rolly when people are complaining about cancel culture. Usually it's Republicans being very petty about the American public or the American consumer making them accountable for things. But this is actually very true. Like there's a a very legitimate debate within the Republican Party right now about whether or not they need to or want to stay loyal to former president Donald Trump and the idea that there's disagreement in that and that that leads to formal censures in their respective states is totally cancel culture. Like, I never, I genuinely never thought I'd be like, that's cancel culture, but Uh it is. And like, anyway, I just, I really appreciated this moment. And overall, I think 
again, just kudos to the Meet the Press team for like carefully finding these Republican voices who are going against the grain of their party and really being vocal against the umbilical cord, essentially, that the Republican Party has tied to the to Donald Trump and saying, like, we should be more than this. Well, I what I think is important to say is the distinction between what Republicans moan about is cancel culture and what they're practicing as cancel culture. Right. So the reality of what a lot of Republicans moan about as cancel culture is people being ostracized from the community or from, you know, their famous perch of wherever they are. Or even just some rando who's like racist and right. does something exactly. horrible. That's what I want to say. For being racist, for being sexist, for being, you know, violent in, in things that they're saying or things that they have done. Mm-hmm. Right. That is the quote unquote cancel culture that exists and that Republicans hate and don't like. And it's a it's kind of like, you know, the next step, the next complaint, the the next evolution in the 1990s complaint of political correctness. That was kind of the phrase that was huge, you know, beginning in the early 1990s. And, you know, there were lots of complaints on the Republican side about political correctness. I mean, and that lasted for a while. Yes. And now it's all about, quote unquote, cancel culture, which is when somebody does something outrageous, there is some form of accountability. even Yeah, public accountability. Yes, exactly. And this is a different type of cancel culture where Republicans are unhappy that you're not supporting Donald Trump and his insurrection. Right. Formally kind of proceeding in steps so that you that there are consequences for that disagreement right now it's not super super new for republicans because people like for example eric cantor who was kind of like i think he was the number three person in the house at the time and you know one of boehner's right hand mans when boehner was the speaker of the house he was essentially canceled by Republicans. He was primaried right. because he, but, you know, didn't support the the GOP base in the but, way they. But they what's looked. happening here is even before a primary, yes. where Republican state parties are censuring their Republican congressmen, their governors, and other prominent conservative leaders for not supporting Donald Trump. It's right. even before an electoral accountability yeah. from the public. Yeah. So, so yeah, kudos for bringing on Congressman Kinsinger. Who I read today started a political action committee aimed at kind exactly. of combating this issue. Yeah, they talked about that a lot. In the interview. Oh, okay. There yeah. it is. Brendan, what's your quality moment? So my quality moment is from Face the Nation. It is a conversation with the CEO of Chicago Public Schools, Dr. Janice Jackson. And this was about the prospect of them opening the schools literally this week in Chicago and all the pushback they've had by teachers and how that's all going to go with COVID-19 and surges or not surges and vaccines, who's an essential worker, et cetera, et cetera. What I really liked about this was the way Dr. Jackson responded to the idea of putting teachers at the front of the line of essential workers to get the vaccine. So you mentioned that one of the issues you're still um, in disagreement with uh, with the union is over vaccination. Chicago is one of the few cities in this country that gets its supply directly from the federal government. The federal guidelines prioritize based on age. That's why I was asking uh, Cedric Richmond, uh, the advisor to the president, about it. I wonder if it would be helpful to you if the Biden administration explicitly said to prioritize teachers in the front of the line as essential workers. Yeah. So in Chicago and in Illinois, we are prioritizing teachers. They are included in 1B, which is currently underway. I think the issue is definitely around vaccine supply. Um, The more uh, vaccines we're able to get, we'll be able to vaccinate people sooner. We have started vaccinating um, individuals in our school system, which is important to note. We started with our healthcare workers and those individuals who work closely with students where uh, they may be at more risk for exposure. Um, But again, in order to accelerate vaccination of our teachers, we quite frankly need more supplies. So why couldn't you move them to the front of 1B ahead of other essential workers with the supply you have now? Well, our city's health department is in charge of that. But what I've heard them say is that, look, the vaccine is a part of a public health uh, toolkit in order to mitigate the spread of COVID. Rule number one is that you have to uh, disseminate those vaccines in places where we're trying to stop the spread of COVID. 
schools are not significant sources of spread. And mm -hmm. so this is as much, this is not as much, this is a public health solution. We have to start with that. Some of these other things are incredibly important, but some of them are political decisions. Our health department is trying to combat um, the effects and the spread of COVID, and we are prioritizing places where we see the spread uh, raging on. What a sophisticated answer and discussion that we heard there from Dr. Jackson on this topic. Even as the CEO of Chicago Public Schools, I'm sure she'd love to say, look, all the teachers get vaccines. But the reality is there's limited vaccines. And yes, teachers are essential workers, but they, it, they have to prioritize that limited supply to places where there's actual spread because that's why the vaccines are going out there. They're not just to protect individuals, they're to protect the community at large. And so to protect the community at large, it, it should be going to those essential workers who are at the greatest risk of spreading and then therefore making more COVID in the community. Yeah, this is, like you mentioned, I think sophisticated conversation is a very accurate description, both in the question Margaret Brennan raises here and the response she gets. I heard the opposite on uh, Fox News Sunday, and I can't remember exactly who now, but it was such like a belittling conversation about teachers unions and how teacher unions are demanding too much. And there was no nuance about, you know, adult safety and prioritization of vaccines and, and how school districts make that determination in collaboration with other jurors. I mean, it was just like teachers unions are so demanding. Blah. So kudos for framing this conversation so well and having a guest who's willing to explain it well to the audience. Yeah, I was just very impressed with the quality of the conversation and, and the detail there, because for me, I was kind of with Margaret Brennan. Like, if they're opening the schools, then let's let's get uh, the teachers vaccinated. That seems really important because they're more likely to have it and spread it than, than the students are, as we've learned from the data. But by the end of the answer, you're like, oh, OK, I understand what's going on here. And, and sometimes you just need someone to calmly thoroughly explain it that way, right? Like not everything is a crisis. Not everything has to be a scandal. Sometimes you just need someone to give a good answer. I mean, so, <laughs> tattoo that on my forehead when I die, but anyway. <laughs> so Naomi, tell me, what, what did you see that was questionable today? Oh, well, speaking of Fox News Sunday, that's my questionable. I don't know, the Chris Wallace that we have appreciated the last six to 12 months has disappeared. He is gone. He has left the building. He is on vacation. I don't know where that. But not really on vacation. Right. The, like the good Chris Wallace. Oh, I see. Is what I'm saying. Like uh -huh. the Chris Wallace who came fully prepared, had excellent questions, who kind of really controlled his interviews. I don't know where he went. And specifically, I'm looking at an interview that he had with Jared Bernstein. He, Jared Bernstein is on the Council of Economic Advisors for President Biden. And he was on kind of defending and talking about Biden's latest COVID relief bill. And I was just so surprised by the lack of specificity and the just the vague ass questions by Chris Wallace here. It seemed very unlike him. So one of the things, and maybe you saw this on your shows, Brendan, but on several of the shows I saw, they talked about Biden's bill and how it's $1.9 trillion and yep. that they just passed a $900 billion package. Why is this so much money? Blah, blah, blah. And Wallace brings up this conversation as well. But he like, I felt like he didn't get to the meat of the bill. Like such and such costs X amount of dollars. Such and such costs Y amount of dollars. Like, why are you fighting for this amount? And it seemed like a conversation that just stayed at the surface. Take a listen to this clip where Chris Wallace specifically asked about the $1.9 trillion tech. But, but just to be clear, when you say he's willing to negotiate, it, it's clear Bill Cassidy, we'll hear from him a little bit more in the next segment. He's one of the 10 Republican senators. President Biden is willing to come down from the $1.9 trillion. President Biden has consistently said he will negotiate with uh, with uh, those on the other side of the aisle uh, about uh, getting this plan out as quickly as possible. What's so urgent here is getting relief to the American people and finally gaining control of the virus. I think the way to think about this, less than the top line number, is the following. Delay, inaction, failure to negotiate, wait and see. 
These have been the enemies of virus control, vaccine distribution, and the arrival of a robust, inclusive, and racially equitable recovery. And the, the president is willing to negotiate with everyone who signs up for the urgency of, uh, of that plan. So it just, I don't know, I feel like in, in another lifetime, Chris Wallace would have said, okay, robust. Okay, the federal minimum wage, why does it need to be robust in this package and you're saying for $15 here? Like, dig at the specifics and make Bernstein, Jared Bernstein kind of like fight and prove why all the different components are necessary. But we didn't see Chris Wallace do it. It was very much just like, looking at the price tag. And if you listen to his follow-up question, like I was hoping maybe like, okay, this is the broad question, the right. follow-up question maybe digs into it. No, there's none of this in the follow-up question. What he talks about is whether or not Biden wants unity. I kid you not. Let me follow up on that because the president talks a lot about bipartisanship, but at the same time, Democrats in the House and Senate are already working on a budget which if they pass it would allow, not saying it'll happen, but would allow them to pass a this COVID relief package on a straight party line vote, just the 50 Democrats plus Vice President Kamala Harris in the Senate. So which is more important to the president? Bipartisanship, unity, or getting it passed now? I don't think it's an either or kind of a choice. Look, the American people really couldn't care less about budget process, whether it's regular order, bipartisanship, whether it's filibuster, whether it's reconciliation, they need relief and they need it now. And I think what's so key here, and the package is scaled to meet the costs that I'm about to articulate. If we don't get this package as designed out the door quickly, we risk having four million fewer jobs at the end of this year. That's from Moody's.com. We risk taking a year longer to get to full employment. Kids who are out of school every year, that costs their lifetime earnings north of 5%. That's a permanent ding on their ability to prosper throughout their lives. Wow. So Bernstein came with specifics. Exactly. And Wallace's questions are just very vague, you know. Does he care about bipartisanship? Blah, 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 blah. Like, really? Uh, it was such like a waste what? of a time question. Yeah. It's like, it's almost like, what's more important in the Pledge of Allegiance? Is it the United States part or is it one nation part? You know, it's like, well... These are vague. These are vague things. Why don't we dig into what's what's going on? Here? What's in the bill? Right. right. Like if you're so against this bill, if Fox News viewers are so against it, like pick it apart. I don't understand. Well, and he could have even Wallace could have even phrased the question a little, you know, in greater detail. He could have said, how long is the president willing to wait and work with Republicans to come up with a bill? Is he willing to work for the next two weeks on that? Is he willing to work for a month on that, for two months, for three months? Like, what is the line in the sand? And you don't have to, you know, do a sharp line in the sand, but tell us, are we talking months? Are we talking weeks? Like, what is the lengths to which he is willing to try to achieve unity on this? Brendan, what is your questionable moment? So my questionable moment has something to do with Republicans as well. And it actually has something to do with this issue of unity. Imagine that. Mm, yes. Interesting. Yeah. So this is at the end <laughs> of the panel on this week. I want to point out that this panel on this week. Now, this week was hosted by Martha Raddatz. And the panel, she said, was a very special panel. And the reason it was special was it was their new ABC team that's covering the White House and Congress. And that includes... Chief White House Correspondent Cecilia Vega, Senior White House Correspondent Mary Bruce, Congressional Correspondent Rachel Scott, and Weekend White House Correspondent Mary Alice Parks. In addition to all working at ABC News, they're all women, with a woman host. So that was a pretty awesome panel for this week in particular. That is very cool. No political people, all journalists, all women, with a woman moderator. Wait, so that you're questionable? <laughs> no. My questionable is, my questionable is this answer from Cecilia Vega at the end, and it's about unity. Take a listen. And, and, and Cecilia, I, I, I want to go back to, to unity here for a minute. You, you covered Donald Trump. You're covering, you're a chief White House correspondent for, for Joe Biden. What have you seen Joe Biden do to reach out 
to some of those Trump voters, reasonable conservatives, to try to bring them into the fold? Well, I, I think, Martha, you're hitting on the complaint that we're hearing from so many Republicans right now that they haven't seen a lot. You know, we're told that the president is very much in touch with people on Capitol Hill and Republicans, leaders on the Hill. Um, his team is actively involved in these negotiations with Republicans as well. But this is the complaint right now from conservatives, from Republicans in this town who say you ran on unity. You mentioned in your inaugural address that you're going to reach out to everyone who didn't vote for you, but they're waiting to see the proof in the pudding. So this is a head-scratching answer to me because the question was, what's Biden doing? Vega answers the question. She says she, she says that the president talked about it in his inauguration. She says he mentioned it. Of course, his entire inaugural address was about that, it seems. She says that the president has been in touch with people on Capitol Hill, Republicans, leaders on the Hill, and that his team is actively involved in negotiations with Republicans. That seems like the answer, right? What, what is Joe Biden doing? But then she continues and says, but this is the complaint right now from conservatives who say they're waiting to see and, and they don't really believe that there's unity. Well, what else could he do? That's my question. Like, why, why are these really smart reporters who know what's going on who can answer the question with facts and say, here's exactly what Biden is doing. Why are they parroting the Republican line that Democrats aren't reaching out to Republicans when they literally admit that Democrats are reaching out to Republicans? They're treating it like, oh, well, this is the complaint right now. Well, you just mediated that complaint with facts by saying it's not true, but you're still repeating it and you're still acting like this is this is a legitimate issue. It's like they're they're treating a lot of these complaints as if they're good faith arguments when I don't see a lot of evidence to support the argument that Democrats are not reaching out. Well, I don't know about Democrats not reaching out like Schumer and Pelosi or other congressional Democratic leadership. What I heard in several interviews was that the White House did not collaborate with Republicans in making the COVID relief bill. So they expected Biden to sit down and co-write the bill with yeah. Republicans? <laughs> yeah. That's this thing, by the way, came out before Biden was even president. They, you know, they released their plan for this bill. The Democrats. Yeah. 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 But anyway, that's my questionable point that they're literally answering with the facts and then repeating the talking point of Republicans as if those two things are not in complete conflict. Well, Brendan, I think that is a pretty natural segue for my moment in politics that I wanted to discuss because it was essentially looking at how journalists are interrogating the COVID relief bill more broadly. And I found the different strategies very interesting and some interviews more worthwhile than others. I'm kind of cheating a little bit because my questionable moment was kind of part of this too. But anyway, (laughs) I thought Chris Wallace did a poor job, but there were two interviews on Meet the Press and on State of the Union that I thought explored this in a very different way. And they were both with Brian Deese. He's the director of the National Economic Council. He's pretty much the top economic advisor to President Biden. And there were a few things that stood out to me. First, on Meet the Press, Chuck Todd starts like before he gets into the interview itself. He has this whole intro talking about the hypocrisy within the Republican Party that goes on for quite a while. And this is the context that starts the Deese interview. Take a listen to two quick clips of Chuck Todd's summary of the current state of the GOP. Let's turn now to the split inside the Republican Party and the grip Donald Trump still has on the GOP. Most viewers are old enough to remember Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, and Lindsey Graham all distancing themselves from the former president, only to find that distance, or maybe it's Mr. Trump's popularity with base Republican voters, makes the heart grow fonder. Either way, it's made President Biden's efforts at unity on things like COVID relief difficult, if not impossible. Whether Donald Trump is a symptom or a cause of the party's populist shift, despite the obvious failures of 2020, Republicans have decided it's in their interest to stick with them for now if they want the majority of Republican voters to stick with them. On Thursday, House Leader Kevin McCarthy made a pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago to mend fences. Then there's Senator Lindsey Graham. All I can say 
is uh, count me out, enough is enough. Now Graham is leading the president's impeachment defense. To my Republican colleagues, there is no way in hell we're gonna retake the House and the Senate without President Trump's help. Just two weeks ago, Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell was pleased by the impeachment effort. The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. But on Tuesday, McConnell and 44 other Republicans voted to toss out the impeachment case as unconstitutional. Now Mr. Trump is supporting primary challenges to House Republicans who voted for impeachment, like third-ranking Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Trump ally Matt Gates at a rally in Cheney's home district. You can send a representative who actually represents you, and you can send Liz Cheney home. And Republicans so far have been slow to criticize Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has embraced QAnon conspiracy theories. Greene has been under fire after a 2018 video surfaced in which she suggests 9-11 was a hoax. The so-called plane that crashed into the Pentagon. It's odd, there's never any evidence shown for a plane in the Pentagon. But anyways, I won't, I'm not gonna dive into the 9-11 conspiracy. Saying the Sandy Hook shooting was a hoax and taunting a Parkland shooting survivor. I carry a gun with, for, for protection for myself and you are using your lobby and the money behind it and the kids to try to take away my Second Amendment rights. And indicating support on Facebook for calls to execute prominent Democrats, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The enemy is within the House of Representatives. And joining me now is the director of President Biden's National Council, uh, Economic Council, Brian Deese, essentially the president's chief economist. Mr. Deese, welcome. So I just include that, the the first question to, to Brian Deese, because... It's just like three minutes or so of, a ch- and I, I, I didn't even use it all of the intro, but like just pretty much eviscerating the yeah. Republican Party and their whiplash support and distance from President Trump. Yeah. And so that by the time you get to the Brian Deese interview, you're like, why are you even trying to make these people happy? <laughs> oh, in terms of. Brian Deese and, and the Democrats trying right, to work with like Republicans. Th- essentially, by the time we get to the Brian Deese interview, my impression is Chuck Todd is not sure why the White House cares so much about what the Republican parties want or what the Republicans want. Well, it's funny the way you say, why make these try to make these people happy when it's like, if the Republicans aren't even happy with the daughter of the former Republican vice president, who's number three in their party and is literally trying to primary her... How are you going to please, if you're a Democrat, please any Republican? Right. I, I, I just don't see it. Yeah. But it was just like the tone in which to start this Deese interview was just very interesting. I I didn't see anyone. I mean, people talked about this, of course, like the, the fracture or the fight within the GOP, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But I didn't see it quite so tied to a defense of the COVID relief bill and makes you kind of. I don't know. It sets the foundation of like, this is where you are fighting. This is the, the the lake, the pool, whatever. These are the waters you're in. Yeah, my goodness. And is it really worth it? So, okay. So I'm going to break the rules here for a second. And there was a second clip that I had related to my questionable that I skipped over. Wow, you skipped a yes. clip? Wow, I'm but proud of you. And that's what you're going to bring it back. Bring it back. <laughs> because it's literally exactly this. And Martha Raddatz did exactly the same thing oh, that, interesting. that he did, that Chuck Todd did. But in her question, in her interview with Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas. So I, w- I won't play his answer here. But you'll just hear the question, which is practically the same thing. Uh And and Governor, I want to make a kind of a sharp turn here to the state of your party, the state of the GOP. You were in the House for about six years. You recently said your party is going to have to do some soul searching about Trump's influence going forward. But it's just been about three weeks since there was a siege on the Capitol. Uh, You know what President Trump did during that period. It almost seems like the party has forgotten this. House Leader McCarthy goes to uh, visit 
President Trump, former President Trump, just eight days after he left office, refusing to say uh, Joe Biden that the election wasn't stolen. Forty five senators saying impeachment is unconstitutional, censuring those who say otherwise and others refusing to say the election was not stolen. It seems Republicans have already searched their souls and are backing Donald Trump's Republican Party. What do you think about that? <laughs> what do you think about that? You know what he did. <laughs> but it's practically the same thing, yeah. right? Now, Hutchinson was very interesting. I mean, I'll just note that he says, oh, um, I'm sorry. Let me just play the rest of this. Oh it's gosh, good. It's, you, just, you should just hear it instead of hearing me explain what it is in, in longer period of time. Well, I think there's a lot of different voices, and uh, the Republican leadership uh, has said very clearly, including Kevin McCarthy, that President Trump has bears responsibility for uh, what he brought the people to the Capitol. He brought them to Washington. They went to the Capitol. He bears some responsibility there. And yet he Senate goes to visit him in a smiling photo opportunity. The Senate trial is going to refocus what happened on the attack on the Capitol, and it's going to call all Republicans to take a position more clearly. Uh, President Trump has helped build the party in the last four years. I hope he does not help to destroy the party in the coming four years. And we need to have a level of accountability. So there you go. I, I but, thought... but that, But this is where... These two interviews are different. Uh -huh. I understand this question in the context of what is happening in your party. Yes. Having this kind of intro before a White House administration official says, this is your opposition. Yes. Why bother? Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting, right? Right. Very interesting. I just want to note from that clip, I did also find it interesting that Hutchinson was saying the Senate trial will refocus what happened on the attack on the Capitol. And that's kind of what Democrats are saying. They're like, Republicans, you can go ahead and sign and say you don't want this impeachment to happen, the trial, but it's going to happen. And you're going to be confronted with the facts of what happened there. Exactly. But it's interesting to hear that from a Republican governor. Right. Okay, getting back to how journalists are interrogating the COVID relief bill. Yeah. Because so far, this was is nothing about the COVID relief bill, except that they're fighting in the waters. Right, exactly. Yeah. So going back to the Deese interview on Meet the Press, I thought Chuck Todd had an interesting question about why not... What's, why are you grinning? <laughs> you just asked why I'm grinning. I just thought of, at some point I could say, well, you know, it was... It was a decent. Oh my God! Don't <laughs> please don't. Continue. Okay, you're like laughing. You're silently laughing in preparation of a bad pun. Yes. Continue. Okay. All right. Back to the Deese interview on Meet the Press. So I thought Chuck Todd had a really interesting question about why not pursue two paths to accomplish all of their objectives that are currently in the COVID relief bill. Oh, why can't you do both? Um, there, there was this idea proposed and, and um, the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki seemed to shoot it down. But let me ask you about it here, which is this idea. Look, you're, you've got you're preparing the groundwork for budget reconciliation. You know there is parts of your $2 trillion plan that does have bipartisan support. Maybe there's basically the, the money for vaccinations, the direct checks with some means testing. There's probably a trillion-dollar deal you could do with 60 votes. Um, why not do that and then get the rest of it through budget reconciliation? Since the timing, uh, uh, it, it wouldn't, I don't think, have a timing problem here, would it? We have a real urgency to act and to act comprehensively. You know, we're losing, um, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing a million people added to the unemployment insurance rolls each week. And we need to act comprehensively. One thing we've learned of the past 11 months is a piecemeal approach where we try to tackle one element of this and wait and see on the rest mm -hmm. is not a recipe for success. So we need to move forward comprehensively and we need to move forward with speed. That's a very interesting question. Right? I thought it was too. It was essentially saying if these are all of your priorities and bipartisanship is important do the parts that you can do with republicans and do the rest on your own yeah i i do think that deese provided some interesting answers there i mean yeah my initial thought 
when I heard the question was because you won't have the political cover of saying we're doing this through budget reconciliation because it's required and this is COVID relief, right? Whereas if they do the COVID relief with Republicans, then they jam something else through budget reconciliation. And they have that option. Then the public might say, why are you jamming this through? It's not even needed. You know, we already did a COVID bill and you're putting in things that aren't related to COVID like $15 minimum wage. Although Richmond, I think, argues for that later. Yeah, yeah. And in general, I think it's just a very interesting angle that I didn't see in any of the other shows. And and it could give them a win saying, we win with unity because we have somebody. Exactly, we, right. We have worked with Republicans. But I do think Deesa's answer that like piecemeal doesn't work and often fails and like m- giving things more opportunities to fall apart is not ideal. Yeah. And, and so I think it's... It's an excellent question, and I think it's a very competent answer, but an angle that I haven't seen in any of the other shows. So well done, Meet the Press there. And I, I, I know we're running a little bit long on this. So just real quick, I also wanted to commend... Partly my fault. That is true. <laughs> but I also wanted to note Deese's interview on State of the Union. State of the Union was hosted by Dana Bash, the co-host of State of the Union now. And she wanted to know more of the specifics, the kind of what I was expecting from Chris Wallace about where they're trying to understand where the points of agreement, where Democrats and Republicans could compromise. Just this week, a million more Americans filed claims for unemployment insurance. 30 million Americans reported they didn't have enough food to eat. We're in a unique crisis and the elements of this plan really were designed and are designed to take on that crisis head on. How are we going to get shots in people's arms? How are we going to get schools reopened so parents can get back to work? And how are we going to provide that direct relief to those families and those businesses that are struggling the most? So that's the theory behind the plan. We're certainly open to input from anywhere where we can find a constructive idea to make this package as effective as possible. But the president is uncompromising when it comes to the speed that we need to act at to address this crisis. But are you willing to negotiate any points of your proposal? Or, for example, are you wedded to the, the, the number, uh, the, the price tag, $1.9 trillion? Are you willing to come down from that? We really need to focus on the elements of this package and what they're intended to do. So if we look at the vaccine distribution effort, for example, the money that was passed in December is quickly running down and we need more resources urgently to stand up the, the vaccine distribution efforts, the vaccine procurement efforts that we know are necessary if we're gonna get our arms around this crisis. Yeah, and everything you're saying uh, is understandable, it makes sense. What I'm trying to figure out is where the points of compromise are. Uh, you talk about the specifics being most important. Uh, you would be okay if those specifics at the end of the day didn't add up to $1.9 trillion? We've put a plan forward that is based on the bottom-up assessment of the objective need. So we, are, we welcome input to say uh, where we may have uh, not gotten everything right, where we could be more effective. Certainly that's part of the process as we go forward. But what we really need to focus on now is what do we need to get this economy back on track? So a bit of an extended back and forth between Deese and Dana Bash, but I thought was effective in terms of, you know, him making the case, look, this bill is designed to match the needs of this moment. And if we want to tackle the virus, these are the components that we need to do. And Dana Bash asked something that I think is a very reasonable question. The Republicans don't want to pay this price tag. Where are the points of agreement? You should know the parts that are going to be easy to win, essentially. Yeah. And I think his goal is not to talk about the process, but exactly. to talk about the policy and talk about and, and it's and funny, what it, talk about what it does. Well, and it's funny, too, because it's actually a phrase I heard from Cedric Richmond, where he said, who's also in the Biden administration. Yes, absolutely. And he was on Face the Nation and he literally said, other people want to argue process. We want to argue purpose. That was the phrase he had. Oh, that's thought. very it's well said. Very well said. But it's exactly what we see Deese doing here. And I want to point out, I mean, this is a different Deese than we heard two weeks ago. And then we criticized two weeks ago. Exactly. For that's not who. talking enough about, you know, the heart of the matter, what, what people are struggling with day to day. And that is all over this answer. He's much, much, much more improved 
from what we heard two weeks ago. I'm going to just take credit for that completely. Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, that, that's that was polylog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so those were, you know, just two unique ways in which I felt like journalists were interrogating the COVID relief bill. In general, I, like, I guess I'm seeing this as a test. This is the first big legislative package goal of the Biden administration. And how are we going to be talking about it? How are we going to be questioning it? How are we going to be questioning the purpose and how we're paying for it? Like all of those things are valid interrogations. And I feel like this is the first sneak peek as to how the shows are going to do do any of that with the Biden administration. Absolutely. So that kind of takes us to my journalism point, Mm, which is about hosts who are informed about what they're talking about. (laughs) And is the subtext there are hosts that sometimes aren't? Well, I mean, as you mentioned, we did not see that from Chris Wallace today. Yeah. And while we saw some more probing from Dana Bash, I didn't get a sense that she had an encyclopedic knowledge of the bill. True. At least from the clip that I heard or the clips I've heard from you. Margaret Brennan, on the other hand, did have encyclopedic knowledge of what's going on with COVID. She has been definitely the star of covering this issue throughout this last year. And she was speaking today with Governor Ned Lamont. He is a Democratic governor from the state of Connecticut. And this was just extraordinary to me. And this is why it stands out to me as a a really great example of strong journalism on the Sunday shows, where she asks him a question, he answers, and then she kind of fact checks him but i don't know it's the type the the place for a you don't often think of a fact check in this context or in this way but she does it take a listen governor we've talked about your state being uh, an outperformer in terms of actually getting vaccine supply out to constituents and i wonder what your advice to the biden administration would be should they continue prioritizing states based on population or reward good behavior by giving more vaccine to states that can actually put it in arms Well, I can tell you they gave us, uh, the previous administration gave us 50,000 additional doses because we were doing a good job of getting people vaccinated on a timely basis. But I think uh, what's most important right now for the Biden administration is give us some uh, transparency. Let us know what we can expect next week, what we can expect next month. So we know how much to expand our infrastructure. But we're ready to get people vaccinated. You just get us the vaccines. Well, we know the White House said this week that they will boost supply about 16 percent, give you three weeks notice of what you're about to get instead of just the one week that you were getting under the prior administration. But then I saw that two health systems in your state have been canceling appointments for shots in arms for the coming week. So I'm wondering, is there still a problem with federal supply? I don't think so. They've done a relatively good job of getting us the vaccines when we need it. I mean, that is not usually what you hear from a fact check where she's where you hear a host say, oh, that thing you're asking for. Yeah, they're already doing that. Here's two explicit examples of what's going on. You don't really know what you're talking about in your tiny state. And, <laughs> and now we're going to continue on and I'm going to ask you another question. I mean, what did you think of that? I mean, that, that was really impressive. I mean, Margaret Brennan does not stand for inefficient government. <laughs> not on her watch. She's like, you should know that you're getting 16% more doses now. And you should know that you're getting three weeks notice instead of one week notice. What you're asking for is being given to you. Thank you very much. Good day, sir. Good day. (laughs) Very interesting. Uh, However, now I do want to give a little little note here. She had a very interesting, important discussion with Governor Lamont later on about vaccine distribution and the equity issues related to that. And take a listen to how he answered both initially and the follow-up, because I think Margaret Brennan missed an opportunity in this instance. So you have prioritized, as the federal government has suggested, uh, based on age. um, and, And there is a correlation, of course, between mortality and age when it comes to COVID. Well, one of your local papers, uh, the Connecticut Mirror, had an analysis pointing out that the 65 and older group in Connecticut is about 84% white. Given how hard hit people of color are, should race be a factor? 
Uh, what they also pointed out, Margaret, is that people of color, black and brown, 60, 65, 75, are much more likely to get infected, much more likely to suffer complications than a white person 10 years their elder. So we are making a big effort to make sure we don't just get the worried well at our big drive-through vaccination centers, but also get our um, mobile vans, go to the churches, go to those um, housing complexes where we can get people vaccinated who have to get vaccinated. But you still will stick with age as the determining factor at this point? At this point, it's 75 and above, just because, as you point out, you know, 80% of the fatalities are related to that narrow group. Then we'll probably go down to 65 and above. Most of those folks have comorbidities. And then we'll look at essential workers in a broader group from there. But uh, we can expand quickly if we get mm -hmm. more vaccines. Well, let me ask you about those essential workers. Um, you have about 50% of your schools already in person face-to-face -face instruction. So this is a learning moment for me because I was sure that the point I was going to make was one thing. And then hearing this a second time, even though I also read it as we were preparing this, I think I understand more about what the governor was trying to say. So let me tell you what I initially was going to say <laughs> and then tell you why I'm thinking I was probably wrong. Okay. So Margaret Brennan asks Governor Lamont about the need to prioritize not just old white people, but younger people of color who might be more susceptible to the virus. And Governor Lamont answers that that article that Margaret Brennan is citing also noted that, as he, as he says, people of color, 60, 65, 75, are more likely to get infected and more likely to suffer complications than a white person who's 10 years their elder. And Margaret Brennan responds, okay, so therefore are you going to make sure that race is a factor? I mean, you're, you're admitting that, right? And he says, nah, at this point, 75 and above, you know, we're doing it with age and that's, that's the rule. And I was like, well, Margaret Brennan, why are you letting him get away with this? You know, it seems like he's giving lip service to big and moral ideals, but then doing nothing about it, right? I mean, we have to hold these politicians accountable to their word. So if they say something that seems like a wholehearted endorsement of a policy shift, but then they don't commit to doing squat, we need to call attention to that and not let them get away with the kind of part, you know, pat on the back of answering the question. You know, politicians with power, they have to be required to talk about action, not just opinion. That was my initial point I was going to make about this clip. However, now that I hear it, I recognize that he was noting his, that other thing that was in the article, as a way of saying older people of color are also at greater risk. And so they're more likely to get the disease than old white people. And therefore age should just, it should be enough for us. We should be appreciative that even though there's a lot of old white people, it doesn't mean that the old people who are getting it are white. And therefore age is, is appropriate. That's what I think he was saying, but it sounded like he was reinforcing her point that race equals we need to not just do this based on age. I guess yes and yes. <laughs> um, I think it's an interesting conversation to be had for sure. I think a lot of times the conversations around the vulnerability of older Americans around seniors has been very separate around the equity issue of the impact of COVID. And I haven't seen too many times people brazenly saying like we need to talk about these at the same time like especially around vaccines where there's a prioritization question that governors and and decision makers need to decide so i think one it was handled pretty the question was well done but the governor's answer i think you're right could have been phrased a little bit more delicately saying race is a concern for old and young people and if we have to prioritize prioritize Older people of color are even that much more important to get vaccinated. And by keeping 75 and up, we can like yeah. make sure we get that. Yeah, his answer was very unclear. It sounded like he was reinforcing what she right. said rather than kind of rebutting a little bit of what she said. And I think that made it even a little confusing for her because she heard it the way that I initially heard it, which is... Possibly, we think. Yeah, which is it sounded like he was saying age should not be the only factor. So very interesting case study both for dialogue on the shows and dialogue here on Polylog, where sometimes you just need to hear it a few times to understand what the hell is going on. That is the truth. But anyway, tell me about the moment in journalism that stood out to you. 
So my moment in journalism, I think, was like a failed moment by Chuck Todd. And speaking of COVID, it was looking at the changing theories around the doses of the vaccine. So, and I don't want to go too specific into it because it's included in the clip, but there's a question among scientists, among public health officials, as to whether or not we should continue in the path that we are now, where Americans get two doses, at least for the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, or if we just prioritize getting everyone as much as possible the first dose, and if we can get them the second dose, that's fine, but we need to get more people the first dose because that gives them some coverage. There was a conversation that Chuck Todd had with Michael Osterholm. He is an infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota. We've been hearing from him all of 2020, and they talked about just this, and I felt like neither one of them were really quite making the case. Take a listen. You and I spoke uh, about this current race against these mutant uh, strains and about the vaccine distribution. And and you seem to uh, you said something that really stuck with me. So I want to show this screen of this is the efficacy rate of the first doses of the three of the vaccines. Moderna at 80 percent, Johnson and Johnson, 72 percent, Pfizer at 52 percent. Again, all the first dose efficacy rates. Um, Do you believe we are now at a point where we may have to call an audible here on how we distribute the vaccine? Well, first of all, let me just say that I have been one of those saying that we need to make sure that we have both first and second doses of that and follow the uh, FDA approval process. But let me say right now, we do have to call an audible. I think it's no doubt about it. The fact is that the surge that is likely to occur with this new variant from England is going to happen in the next six to 14 weeks. And if we see that happen, which my 45 years in the trenches tell us we will, we are going to see something like we have not seen yet in this country. Uh, England, for example, is hospitalizing twice as many people as we ever hospitalized at our highest number. And so we do know that if we look at these first doses, that in fact we can even get higher numbers than you just laid out by the time of the third week after vaccination. So we still want to get two doses in everyone, but I think right right now in advance of this surge, we need to get as many one doses and as many people over 65 as we possibly can to to reduce the uh, serious illness and deaths that are going to occur over the weeks ahead. So my frustration with this is I felt like both Chuck Todd and Dr. Osterholm were completely tone deaf in that one, Americans have extreme COVID fatigue and there's a lot of skepticism about the vaccines to begin with. So if you're going to try to change course of how we've been told vaccines should be administered and their efficacy and why we need to get it done, then I think you need to be more convincing on the why and the science and the need to do it in some new way, right? Because also the new way is not the way Dr. Fauci wants and some other scientists want. They want to kind of keep with how the studies were done to begin with, which is the the two-dose procedure. And so I felt like I understand your concern about these new strains of, of the COVID virus and that it's very scary in, in the UK and South Africa and Brazil. Like there's these hotspots where if we don't do anything, could come here. Well, I mean, it probably is here, but it could overwhelm the American system in the same way, right? But that doesn't explain your confidence in changing the vaccine procedures. And Right, because there's not a lot of data behind that beyond what he put up on the screen. Right, it's just like, I felt like it doesn't help people understand. Like, if you're trying to convince Americans, like, look, it's so bad, one dose is enough. Trust me, it's really bad in in the UK. Like, that is not appropriate enough of an answer. And I felt like both him, both Dr. Osterholm and Chuck Todd were just like, wow, it's so scary, these variants. And I'm not saying they're not, but you're not doing the work of explaining why this new way of one dose is is sufficient. Yeah, and of course, if if you follow the Sunday shows, you'll probably remember Margaret Brennan in conversation with Monsef Slawi about this in great detail right before he left, you know, the head of the vaccine, you know, warp, warp speed. speed team, saying that, yeah, it might look good on paper, but 
the, everyone who got those first doses immediately got the second dose on schedule because that's what the schedule was, except for that one weird instance where uh, that one vaccine that didn't get approved. But on the numbers we're looking at, people got the second dose. So we don't know right. if, that, if that efficacy rate drops off, you know, a month later or two months later or right. three weeks the later. The data doesn't It wasn't hold designed for, that way. It, right. Yeah, it was... The, the study and our understanding of the vaccine is not for one dose, it's for two doses. And if you want to uh, risk it and say, hey, let's do one dose anyway, we need as many people, like you just need to explain why you have that confidence rather than what has been laboriously like told to Americans and, and essentially people begging Americans to get this vaccine with the two doses. Like it's right. just, it doesn't reflect how Americans feel already about COVID and the vaccines. And I'm not saying he's wrong, but you're not doing a good job in explaining why you're right. And an important part of the story is that the Biden administration has already said, don't hold the second dose back. When we send you the supply, use it all on first doses, and then we'll manufacture more within the, the, you know, three weeks or four weeks. Yeah, but I mean, But Osterholm is not there to, like, defend the Biden administration, like, rollout plan. Like, just his role alone is not being done well, is my complaint. No, but what I'm saying is, how will this actually make a difference if already they're using all the doses they have for first doses? Yeah, so... I want to make one more point, and it's just related to what we heard here, because it is in opposition to what I heard from our trusted Scott Gottlieb who is not an infectious disease doctor, but was the head of the FDA and is super connected to all this stuff. Scott Lieb, Scott Lieb, (laughs) Gottlieb, (laughs) Gottlieb said that he doesn't expect there to be a B117 surge across the U.S. until the fall. He said that there will likely be surges in hotspots like Florida and Southern California, where it's kind of taken hold, but that he does not expect the whole of the country to have that this spring or in the summer. He expects it to happen near the end of summer and fall. And by that time, we'll have vaccinated a lot more people. So I thought that was very interesting. I had not really heard that. I had, I've had i only heard dire warnings about this. Right. I wish that Margaret Brennan had gone a little deeper into the thinking behind that. So Brennan, do you have a political moment I think you have left? That's all that I have left to talk about today. And the political moment is also related to COVID-19, and it is from Miami Mayor Francis Suarez. He is a Republican mayor, the city of Miami. He was on Face the Nation speaking with Margaret Brennan. And this is worth discussing because it is, frankly, outrageous. (laughs) And Do we ever talk about anything not outrageous? Well, it's just outrageous the position that some of these mayors are in and some of these Americans are in when their leaders are not are not looking out for their best interest. I'm just going to go ahead and play this. I can't believe what's going on. Take a listen. According to the CDC, uh, Florida is the state with the most cases of B117. That's that strain first detected in the UK. It's highly contagious. And I know there's a concentration in South Florida. What mitigation measures are you putting in place in your city to contain it? Well, you know, uh, we've been restricted from being able to put in mitigation measures. Uh, I had implemented a a mask in public order uh, back when we were allowed to do that during the summer, and that drove down cases by 90 percent. Now we're not allowed to implement a mask in public order. It's something that I had been uh, speaking to the coronavirus task force about. When you say not allowed, uh, I assume you're referring to Governor DeSantis, uh, a fellow Republican who has uh, put in place restrictions to bar local governments from enforcing uh, mask mandates. Um, So you're are you telling him as mayor, I need power over my own city? Sure. Yeah, I've I've, I've, uh, tried to reach him uh, on multiple occasions to tell him to give us the opportunity, not just here at the city, but in the county to be able to institute things that we think are common sense, that we think are backed up by science. Um, And we can demonstrate are backed up by science. I have a chart that shows demonstrably that mass and public work. Uh, Thankfully, a lot of our residents are doing it regardless. I think they're obviously concerned about their own health. And certainly we've been hammering home the point uh, in PSAs, uh, you know, throughout, uh, you know, last few months. And I think that's one of the main reasons why our hospitalizations remain low. So I'm very thankful that our residents are listening, despite the fact that it's something that we can't mandate. And the governor has not responded, I assume, to your request. That's correct. That's right. 
I looked at the White House report for your state this week, and it highlights the metro area around Miami uh, as being in the red zone. But your restaurants are allowed to have 100% capacity, um, along with social distancing, of course. But your bars, your nightclubs, your gyms are all open. Should you be rethinking that? Well, like I said, you know, unfortunately, uh, that's not uh, in our purview. That's something that the governor has decided. Is this governor death? I mean, governor COVID? What? Someone needs to brand this guy as a danger to his residents. Like, this is a Republican mayor that we just heard from saying that he can't put in a mandate, that he has proof brought cases down 90%. And the governor has taken that ability away from him and won't answer his calls. Yeah, as I have heard via text message from friends in Florida, DeSantis literally pins the hands back of mayors and local governments to keep their residents safe. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable to see this. I I just, I'm without words. I mean, Republicans are supposed to be the party that believes in state and local, local control. And here they are not allowing someone of their own party to make a rule that is backed up by science to protect people's lives. I'm just, I, I, I just don't understand the politics of it at all. I really don't. I don't understand what is going on. It is, it is so dangerous. And I genuinely hope that at some point, and I don't have a lot of hope that it will happen, that there is like a Nuremberg style trial where people who were in positions of power and knowingly made choices purposefully to hurt and ultimately cause death on their citizens are held to to strict account. That's all I will say. Well, quite the range of conversation today on Polylog. It's an insane world out there. It really is. Crazy, crazy. It's almost like it's still 2020. It is, yeah. <laughs> Brendan, let's talk about show ratings. Well, I only had two to talk about. Right, this week. What do you give it? Oh, you're starting with this week. I think this week was probably six and a half seven maybe there were a few strong moments but not a ton of strong moments it it really didn't it didn't stand out as anything super amazing but i did appreciate that there was a focus on covid because that's a top story right now and that there was a focus on having intelligent correspondent driven conversation on the panel even though i didn't agree with everything said and how about face the nation what do you think how'd they do i think margaret brennan did an excellent job there were just so many things i highlighted and i wasn't able to talk about and the i think the only thing that both of these shows were missing was a discussion about what happened on wall street this week and i think oh that, my gosh i heard it so much in the shows oh, really? that was on. the yeah. two shows i covered did not talk about it at all so i think i'll give face the nation like an eight and a half It was a very strong show, but there were still things that were missing. Yeah, so I, starting at State of the Union, I think I'd give it, I think an eight. I thought Dana Bash did a really good job with the Deese interview. She also... A decent job? More than a decent job. No, (laughs) Brendan. I was so close to getting to the end without you bringing it in. I thought she did a pretty good job, and she had some Republicans on that she kind of questioned, again, this quote-unquote fracture within the GOP. She also had a whole conversation with Elizabeth Warren specifically on this whole Wall Street fiasco. My impression of the Wall Street, that Wall Street conversation was it was really good if you knew what was happening. Mm. So... But there was a really sweet closing where she kind of thanked the State of the Union team about kind of like welcoming her on board officially. Oh, that's it was, nice. It was really nice. I'm excited for Data Bash. I think I'm, it's, I'm, it's a more emotional, like, good job, Data Bash, eight than anything else. But I think a good use of time. In terms of Meet the Press, I thought the panel on Meet the Press was actually really well done. There were Ashley Parker was on, Al Cardenas was on. There were some other voices there too, but I thought the panel was I thought the panel was honest and blunt, but also skeptical about what was actually going to happen. And oftentimes panels are one or the other. So specifically, there was this question about like, does it matter if Biden does things in a bipartisan way or, you know, or that his stuff passed? And Al Cardenas, the Republican, was just like, people are not going to care about how it was passed. They want to know how things change a year from now. Yeah. And I was like, yes, finally a Republican. <laughs> like, you know, it was kind of that real honest talk, yeah. which I really appreciated. So I think I would give Meet the Press a seven. I think 
Fox News Sunday. It just meandered. I, you know, we were talking earlier today, Brendan. I find that the first like 15, 18 minutes of Fox News Sunday are often really great. And then it's just like blah, that like latter half, like just so often just drags on, feels like 15 minutes takes me 50 minutes to get through. And this is not like Face the Nation, where only the first half is broadcast to some Yeah, exactly. The whole thing is broadcast all the time. Totally. So I'm getting a little annoyed with that. And so I think I would give it a five for that very reason. Ooh, I'm surprised you went so high based on what I heard from you. Yeah. All right. And our dialogue challenge this week... How about sophisticated conversation? Ooh, try to how have, classy. Yeah, try to have some sophisticated conversation. Well, we went to Sundance this weekend, so we're so sophisticated. Yeah, digitally. <laughs> I know. I want to <laughs> go back to movie festivals and film festivals. Yeah, but I think, you know, try to have a conversation that's a little deeper than the top layer. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting you mentioned, well, one that we're classy because we went to Sundance, but we had a conversation with a friend about a good movie that we just saw, and it was exciting to kind of have vigorous conversation about parts of a movie that we really liked that challenged us, that we thought about, that we were thinking about, that we, that stayed with us, and just that alone can sometimes be so refreshing to have that kind of dialogue with somebody. Even outside politics. Yeah, totally. We do have other interests other than politics. It's true. (laughs) We find the time. (laughs) How do we do it? Well, that's it for Polylog. You can email us at podcast at polylog.com. If you want to get in touch with us, you can follow me at Beastidle on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at SotoNaomi underscore. And you can always follow the show at Polylogcast. Thanks, everyone. And we'll talk with you next week. Goodbye. Bye.